This is a spoiler warning. We are going to spoil the episodes discussed in the show. It's also a free-flowing discussion. We're going to spoil pretty much most of the show aired to date. Uh, we'll do our best not to spoil any of the big finish range other than the episode that's discussed, but you are warned. Problem is, Perry, we are faced with a conundrum wrapped up in a dilemma. Hello and welcome to The Twin Dilemma, a Doctor Who fan podcast. Each week we look at two stories from Doctor Who. One is classic, one's new Who. We compare them and tell you definitively, undoubtedly, whatever else, which one's best. Those are the twins. That's the dilemma. I am your co-host, Fenric Lamar. And I am Edward whatever else grove. And this week our theme, Edward, is sickness. Ooh. I, I say like that it. to you like you didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> That sounds great. It's actually very appropriate because, as I mentioned, I, I feel like shit because I ate dinner too fast <laughs> before starting this recording. Uh, all that means is that when you inevitably vomit, we will keep it in the final cut. Perfect. Yeah, because uh, you know, sickness, which means we're discussing stories where the doctor eated it too fast and now his tum-tum hurts. Or uh, went swimming too quickly after a meal. Oh, and then his tum-tum hurts? And then his tum-tum hurts. <sighs> Both of his tum-tums. <laughs> <laughs> no, really, our episodes this week uh, just generally involve ailment, uh, illnesses, people in medical disrepair. And we'll start off with our entry from Classic this week, The Visitation. Why were those men following us? You don't know. Well, we're new to the area. You must be new to the world, sir. Have not you heard? There is plague. Where? Everywhere. In the plague-infested English countryside, the occupants of a small town have turned strangely hostile. But it's not just disease that's on their minds. There's also the influence of a malevolent alien force that wants nothing more than to see the whole world dead. Edward, what do you think of The Visitation? I thought The Visitation was pretty good, sort of a few decisions away from being a really enjoyable story, but that those decisions that were, were bad were, were pretty bad, honestly. Yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, I, I find it to be kind of a middle-of-the-road story. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't feel like there's glaring flaws. Yeah, I, I feel like, it's, to me, it's... Maybe we'll, we'll disagree a little bit then, because I feel like it's middle-of-the-road by way of extremes, by way of being like, oh, that's a really cool concept. Like, the initial concept, I think, is fantastic. How bad is the plague? Oh, the worst I've ever seen. More virulent here than the city, but that's only to be expected. What? Did not you see the comet a few weeks ago? A portent of doom, if ever I saw one. I love the idea of this, like, you know, the people associating this supposed comet that's actually aliens and that being tied in with the Black Death and everything. That's a great setting for a Doctor Who story. I like that immediately as soon as they get into town, these people just start to, like, beat them with clubs. Yeah. <laughs> But see, that's where, to me, then there's a lot of shitty stuff. I think the mind control in this story sucks big old fat visitation dicks. And, uh, you know, we've never talked about this episode. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think you've even seen the episode Kinda. 
Is that true? No, I have not seen Kinda. Uh, so Kinda is right before this story, and it involves Tegan being mind-controlled by this creature called the Mara. And I was like, it's so weird. They did two stories back-to-back that are just Tegan being mind-controlled the whole time. <laughs> they really kind of crutched on mind-control in classics sometimes. Like I feel like it came up really during this era like too much. And uh, I think the Terraliptals, which I hope I'm saying that right, Terraliptals? I think it's Terraleptal. I don't care. <laughs> I'm about to shit on them anyway. Uh, they're one of the biggest, when I think of like, you know, great things and then shitty things that comprise this episode, there's a big hole where a really good antagonist would make up for a lot of the flaws. And I think they're they're really weak. Unless you like uh, just weird, ugly turtle things. Well, speaking of their ugliness, I do actually like the design of the Terraleptal. I think it looks I agree with cool. that, actually. Well, well, they're also helped out by the fact that they're alongside the worst looking thing in all of classic Doctor Who. What's that? The fucking bedazzled android. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he looks like, um, he looks like, uh, when you first see him, he look, he's trying to be death or something. Yeah, and I like that part, you know. I like a good Grim Reaper walking around. He's wearing the worst Halloween store yes. mask. Yes, he does look like it's literally from, you know, Halloween Express or whatever it's fucking called. And then, you know, he pulls it off, and then he's like a cardboard uh, box. He gets so much worse after <laughs> the cheap Halloween costume comes off. Which, yeah, it's so weird that the Terraleptal looks so good. They they got, like, the face to move around when it talks yeah, and the, stuff. Yeah, the close-ups in the later parts of the story where you can see the scars more, and there's actually the movement in the rubber mask. That stuff looks really good. And I like that they actually, you know... Uh, usually when they have uh, some bad guy who's horribly disfigured, which happens, what, every other episode of yeah, Classic? listen, everyone knows if you're disfigured, you're evil. <laughs> uh, well, at least, it, you know, the motivation is always, I'll never be with anyone again. Oh, a companion. <laughs> <laughs> Must molest. Uh, I like that it wasn't just some some guy that they threw makeup on. They don't usually go for the the monster being an outcast of his own monster society. Oh, yeah, in that he's like a uh, a sort of runaway convict. Well, also just that, like, you know, because his face is melted, he's, you know, because a lot of times when they do the face melting, it's a human. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, look at how, how gross he is. But now we have the figure. They the, doubled it up. Yeah, we have, he's like a dragon he's a thing. Terraliptal. <laughs> he's also an Uggo. An Uggo. From the Uggo planet. So he came up in our first clip, but I want to ask you what your thoughts are on the character of Richard Mace. To me, again, this represents the extremes of the story. I think Richard Mace is fucking excellent. I found Richard Mace to be incredibly weird the entire time. I I agree with that. And I think (laughs) if you'd said you hated him, I would totally understand that. Because first of all, as an actor, he makes very strong choices. (laughs) Yeah, He's he's got a natural charisma, though. But the character just befuddles me. <laughs> like, he's not at all put off when the doctor apparates through a wall. Yeah. <laughs> With a trick like that, you could make a fortune around the fairgrounds. I must speak to the people who invented it. He thinks a lot of the things that the doctor does are tricks. He thinks it's a trick for a long time. It's, it's only once they get into that other, that terraleptal ship that he has like a sort of mini breakdown and is like, this wasn't magic all along. They do give him a little bit of a backstory to try and explain why he's like not put off by any of this uh, quote unquote magic tricks. Yeah. 
Uh, nonsense, sir. That glow is a conjuring trick. I'm a man of the theater. I'm not impressed by trickery, however clever it is. I love that. And I mean, he doesn't even need to say I'm from the theater because he says that with every piece of dialogue he has. <laughs> you know, he might as well wear like a velvet curtain and bow for like every single line. I just think he's a delight. He's such a fun like, first of all, he's introduced in the most ridiculous fashion where he's just like chilling up in a tree with two pistols. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because he not only did he used to be in theater, but now he is a, uh, what, are, what are they called? A, a highwayman. Yeah, he calls a highway himself man. a highwayman, but really he's like LARPing as a highwayman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we never really see him rob anybody. His guns are like always empty. Yeah. I actually wanted to ask you because at the very end of the story, the doctor... I mean, he's the fifth doctor, so it's not as much of an honor as normal. <laughs> he's offered a spot as a companion. Can we drop you anywhere? I'm afraid your pace of life is a little too fast, sir. I shall stay here and fight the fire. The much, much quieter occupation. Would you have liked Richard Mace as a companion? Well, let me say this. Uh, I, I didn't actually like Richard Mace that much. I was put off too much by his antics. No, fun by his antics. his chewing the scenery. Fun antics. However, uh. Uh, this is one of the eras where I would say, yes, please give us a character in the TARDIS. <laughs> I think he would have been, honestly, because he was, he was drawn so broadly, he would have been a bit, a bit too much as an actual companion. But I would have loved like a three-story arc with Richard Mace. I think that would be super fun. I could see him, like, slowly turning into a bit of a Jamie type. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to see him just in a future world with his, his weird ideas. <laughs> <laughs> this is all trickery. Let me go chew the scenery over here. And I'll try to shoot you. <laughs> oh, God, I've shot the president of this planet. <laughs> so there, there's two things that really make this episode notable. I don't think many people put it on the top of uh, any of their lists, but there's... the, the First of all... The first one, the sonic screwdriver gets uh, killed just like Adric. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't my day, is it? I feel as though you've just killed an old friend. It was foreshadowing. That's why when it, when oh. it, when it gets destroyed, he goes, uh, just like Adric's going to get destroyed. And Adric <laughs> Adric's goes, like, what? what? <laughs> and the fifth doctor's like, no, I was just, I mean, not that you will. I was just hoping that it would happen. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Sonic Screwdriver, gone, dead. Yeah, and I like the way it does get all bent up like a weird wiener on the ground. <laughs> yeah, it, it reminded me a lot of uh, when it blows up in the 11th hour and it gets bent into a little wiener. A little wiener, yeah. I mean, you, you need that that little weird wiener shot. The the wiener motif. I oh God, I hope we get that with uh, Jodie Whittaker. She needs a good destroyed wiener moment. That'll really get fandom in a tizzy. <laughs> yeah, I think what we're really trying to say is that Jodie Whittaker really could use a penis. Well, she needs a destroyed penis specifically. <laughs> and then she's got to be like, you know what? I'm done with that. Uh, time for my sonic catcher's mitt. <laughs> no, wait, hold on. I'm going to use this like uh, sonic stinky mouth. I don't know what that means. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of the worst, like, least appealing description of a vagina I could possibly conjure. But yeah, so... <laughs> <laughs> uh, moving away from uh, disgusting vaginas. Number two, the other thing that I think really makes this episode notable, 
and it's weird because these things happen all the time. But for some reason, like this is what I think of when I think of the visitation is that the, the doctor accidentally starts the Great Fire of London. He absolutely does. And it's uh, it's funny because I think it is what this story is known for. And it is a minuscule plot point. <laughs> As in it's like only prevalent for five seconds, like <laughs> right at the end. Also, uh, I, I assume it's different in the UK. Um, in America, we hear of the Great Fire of London. We don't mm. even get taught about it. But like, there's no moment in this episode where somebody says, oh, it's the Great Fire of London. Yeah, they just reference, uh, what is it, Padding Lane? Yeah, yeah, they reference where it starts, which yeah. I assume you British people know. Like, <laughs> you see that imagery and you go, oh, I get it. But I remember watching this the first time and going, what just happened? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it, I mean, the, that fact is not as... Uh, uh, it hasn't penetrated oh, as deeply into American <laughs> consciousness. Uh, but yeah, I think you, because they, they mentioned the year earlier, right? Like yes. Very early on. That's really, uh, as an American, your main hope for being, <laughs> realizing what's going on. Also, I guess just being in London and there being a fire, you can kind of go, I guess it's the Great Fire of London. <laughs> Did they have any other noteworthy fires? Uh, the Blitz. <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe it was the Blitz. The that happened around that the right Blitz. time, yeah. right? <laughs> Fucking immortal Hitler. Goddamn immortal Hitler. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit more about the actual sickness of our story. We talk about this. It starts already in a plague-ridden area, but then the Terraleptal's plan is essentially to create a super plague. A super plague and release it with their rats. The infection it now carries has been genetically re-engineered. Although heavily infected, it will outlive you all. And uh, it's part, like, I feel like there's basically one full episode worth of padding in this. It's like the second half of uh, part two and the first half of part three. And I really wish it wasn't there. Because I think if you take a lot of the parts, get rid of the mind control. Fuck the mind control right out of this story. But that's a cool plot. Yeah, I do like that. Uh, I like that it's sort of like a desperate measure that they just have to use this disease that's already wiping out the human race. Yeah, and I like that, you know, they feel convinced that uh, as space convicts, you know, they're basically, they have no chance of coexisting on their planet or with humans. And so the easiest thing for them to do is just kill all the fucking humans. Yeah, uh, makes total sense. Absolutely. That's what I would do. <laughs> it's, it's evil, but it's got a, a certain uh, internal calculus to it that can't be denied. I mean, you could just move to like an island. Well, the doctor pitches that to them and he's like, ah, <laughs> oh, but fuck you, though. Yeah, uh, they go a little bit overboard with their plan. <laughs> there's Because there's literally only three of them. Four. Well, there were four, and one died somehow. Well, I think that one dies in that uh, cold open. We just don't see it. He dies fighting that family. Right. Yeah, and so now there's only three, and it's like they think there's nowhere on this planet the three of us can hide. No, you want to hide your whole life? No, better to... To live truly as a lion than cower as a lamb. <laughs> Trying to paraphrase some weird Hitler quote. Or maybe it's Mussolini. I think Mussolini has <laughs> some quote about that. Uh, immortal Mussolini? Immortal Mussolini. If you can remember that Mussolini quote, tweet us at finish. <laughs> the other thing is that um, they all came from prison together. And, uh, may, you know, maybe I'm just... Uh, you're saying they're, they're butt buddies? Is that what Yes, <laughs> that's where I was going. Well, uh, I'm just assuming from a human standpoint, they're probably all male. 
but that they separate their genders in prison. Uh-huh. So there's no way that they're going to perpetuate. Oh, you're, I, I just realized I made a huge human assumption. They're probably cloaca buddies. They could be. Yeah. I mean, yeah, because they're reptilian. Yeah, or at least terreptilian. <laughs> <laughs> the last moment I want to point out, this moment early on where the doctor's talking about this idea of he wants to basically force them to go back to their home planet before he even knows anything about whatever the alien race is. And he says, Oh, twist their arms a bit to let me take them back to their own planet. I hope they have arms to twist. I'll find something. And I just think that line would have been perfect for our theme next week. Stories where the doctor twists alien dicks. <laughs> yeah, it can be patched up uh, perfectly with... Uh, isn't there some new who where he punches somebody in the dick or something? Somebody punches somebody. I don't, uh, I don't recall, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a, a wild guess and say it's an R2D episode. I think so, yeah. Maybe it's a companion. He punches Kicking a companion somebody in, the in the dick. dick. <laughs> the doctor punches a companion <laughs> in the dick. It basically has to be Mickey. It was Rose. Oh, okay. <laughs> Boy, unexpected twist. What a great note to end on. But don't go yet. We've got some trivia. As discussed, this episode featured John Nathan Turner's intentional killing of the sonic screwdriver plot device. It wouldn't be seen on screen again until the 96 TV movie. Do you think uh, Colin Baker was sad about that? Think he wanted one? I bet not, because I I do actually like John Nathan Turner's uh, reasoning behind it. To expand on that, Eric Sayward's original script did feature a scene of the Fifth Doctor finding a replacement in the TARDIS, but John Nathan Turner removed this scene, feeling that the screwdriver was a narrative crutch. Yeah, I think, uh, actually, I would not be surprised at all if if Chibnall did the same thing. Although I guess the rumor is that there's There's actually making a new one. Yeah, Yeah, but to me, it just feels like... uh, when you take on the role of the doctor, you want to be given those scenes where you outsmart everybody in the room. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I, I don't think he would have a problem with it. I, I do say that it, it doesn't appear on screen, but we, we do know that the seventh doctor actually gets his sonic screwdriver back. Uh, that first happened in novels. And then of course we have that in big finish as well. It's true. Yeah. And um, yeah, he, he actually, you do see him having one in the, the TV movie. The Seventh Doctor? Oh, right, because he's got it like in a box or something. Yeah, it's very brief. This is one of the few stories produced in a serial format to increase its ratings with each subsequent episode. Interesting. Yeah. In fact, part four is uh, one of only five that John Nathan Turner ever produced that uh, beat out 10 million. Huh. I wonder uh, if it was like due to like other things that were happening or if people actually just really got into this shit. I, I don't know. Uh, I have a hard time... Hard to believe. I right? know, right? Because, yeah. like, it's especially a story where, like, if you jumped in in part three, you'd just it, be like, it, okay. It drags towards the end of part two. I think it kind of drags in part one. <laughs> <laughs> Working titles included Invasion of the Plague Men and Plague Rats. Pretty bad titles. Yeah, those aren't very good. Visitation, not very great. Yeah, because that's one of those titles that you could slap on any episode of Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. At mm-hmm. some point in an episode, somebody has to visit another person? Yep, always. Yeah, I think the original tagline for the show was a visitation in space and time. I think it actually was a visitation in visitations and visitation. And then they were like, now nah, that sounds like some gay plague shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because those, those two things go hand in hand. Visitation, plague. Perfect. The masks worn by the terraleptal actors are the first use of animatronics in the series. Huh. 
you could tell that there's definitely something special going on behind those masks because the the lips would move around as we sort of talked about, but uh, still hadn't gotten down making the mouth match the, the no. dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> they definitely do some real like money shots of it too. Some like close-ups like check out this shit. Oh yeah, some real money shots. <laughs> check out this pterodactyl face with semen all over it. <laughs> I wonder if anybody has ever done a pterodactyl tribute. Let's be the first. Funnily enough, the fourth doctor claims in the story Pyramids of Mars that he was falsely blamed for the Great Fire of London. So at some point, somebody was like pointed a finger at him and was like, you caused the Great Fire of London. And he's like, nah. And he fucking did. That's neat, actually. Probably that person must have just known more at that point. And now we'll move on to our entry from New Who this week. It's a two-parter. The Empty Child and the Doctor Dances. This is the doctor speaking. How may I help you? Mommy? Mommy? Who is this? Who's speaking? Are you my mommy? Who is this? Mommy! How did you ring here? This isn't a real phone. It's not wired up to anything. In the first TV story written by Stephen Moffat, the doctor finds himself in the middle of the Blitz, where the city is overwhelmed by not only Nazi bombs but a strange new latex fetish that seems to be sweeping through the city. (laughs) I was like, wait, what? Took me a second. That's what's going on, right? (laughs) All right, so Fenric Lamar, are you my mummy? Uh, Well, I'm not, but I'm willing to be. (laughs) Right, if the price is right. (laughs) I mean, who needs money? Who needs mummy? Who needs mummy? (laughs) I only said that because I knew you would. (laughs) But no, let's get down to business. No more no more attempts at humor. <laughs> <laughs> All right, straight laced from here on out. What do you think of The Empty Child and The Doctor Dances? I love this two-parter. What an original opinion. <laughs> uh, I, I'm probably not alone in saying that, uh, you know, especially if you're starting with Rose and you've never watched Doctor Who and you have no idea what you're getting yourself into. Mm-hmm. This might be the episode, and it kind of was for me, along with a Dalek, where I was like, okay, I can see myself continuing to watch this show. For me, for whatever reason, I think the end of the world is a, a moment where I really was like, oh man, I'm, I fucking love this show. But I, this episode, I think for anybody who's going through from uh, from Rose on, it's definitely, a, to say it really weirdly, entering another circle of hell <laughs> in the best possible way. It, it feels like the show is, uh, it's showing you new moves, basically. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about this in episode eight, New Beginnings, uh, with, with uh, Stephen Moffat's episode, The Eleventh Hour. This is another one that feels like, you know, he just had pent up, like he was just ready to blow a hot load of... <laughs> 20 years worth of probably more than that, right? Decades of <laughs> of nerddom all over the screen. Like you, you there's so many cool ideas in this. And it's funny going back and watching it how immediately it sounds like a Stephen Moffat script. Yeah, it does a little bit. And like Rose of being pulled away on a string by a one of those balloons and flying through the blitz is like such a Stephen Moffat idea. That whole joke about mauve as the the color of danger in the universe that's so stephen moffat what's the emergency it's mauve 
Universally recognized color for danger. What happened to red? Well, that's just humans. By everyone else's standards, Red's camp. Oh, the misunderstandings, all those red alerts, all that dancing. Yeah, I honestly connect that a little bit more with uh, Russell T. Davies' uh, g- green moon is this universal symbol of uh, of uh, doctors. Very yeah. on theme. But yeah, you know, the pull, like the pattern of that dialogue and the way it plays out, it's like 100%. It, I mean, it screams of Stephen Moff instantly. Imag- you can imagine so easily Eleven saying that. And, you know, uh, we're, we're going to talk about him anyway. Probably one of the things that feels the most like Stephen Moffat is Captain Jack, because it's just sex, 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 yeah. sex. Well, it's so funny because overall, Jack to me feels deeply, entirely like a Russell T. Davies character. But in this story, yeah, it's 100% he's pulled from an episode of Coupling. Well, that is interesting going back and looking at what Jack was in this story because they really don't reveal that he's, uh, you know, omnisexual until the very end. Like, there's a tease of it about he, he, like, hits on this one male soldier, but you could take it as, like, a joke? Yes. Yeah, but it is very, very fitting because Jack's first line ever in the series. Excellent bottom. Excellent bottom. Excellent bottom. (laughs) I mean, obviously not ass, but like, who says bottom? Anus would have been (laughs) excellent anus. Impeccable anus. That's well, that's a very different criterion. You know, like when when you're calling, when you're telling somebody that they have an excellent anus, you've been inside it. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe you just heard secondhand. You're just reporting. Oh, excellent anus. Word around the, the block is that Rose has an excellent anus. I he said that to the doctor later. concerned. <laughs> Which, okay, that brings up another thing, something I wanted to talk about. There's this ongoing sort of uh, joke between Rose and the doctor. And uh, she basically... Oh, is it that, that joke about how... <laughs> <laughs> God damn it. I'm ready. I'm not even gonna, I was going to say how Chinese people stink. <laughs> how do we get to Chinese people... It's World War II, at least Japanese. I was trying to say something really absurd and horrible. (laughs) (laughs) That was the dumbest fucking thing I've maybe ever considered saying on this show. I just have to say, for you you listeners, you missed this look on his face of just realizing that he didn't want to say anything. I wanted to say that that face was me realizing I couldn't say it. I was like, I'm not going to be able to say Chinese without laughing <laughs> because ch- I was like that's halfway to laughing making a ch- sound. they have this ongoing joke about <laughs> about how Edward Grove is a fuck boy <laughs> well I mean they're not wrong basically they have this exchange it's 900 years old me I've been around a bit I think you can assume at some point I've danced you problem doesn't the universe implode or something if you dance? Well, I've got the moves, but I wouldn't want to boast. That's right, yeah. If it's not made implicit in that scene, they do later, they concrete the idea that they're talking about the doctor having sex. Yes. Which yeah. is very strange. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I agree 100%. That's actually, it's it's funny, there were only a few things in this story that on revisiting at this time, because I hadn't seen it for a couple of years, you know, I'm seen it a bunch of times but i haven't seen it for a while and there were only a few things that i didn't like as much as i remembered and that was one of the things i didn't like as much and then one element of that is 
There's more of literally the doctor dancing than I remembered. At the end, he really just kind of dances for a bit. And I don't like watching Christopher Eccleston's body move like that. (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny. In a weird way, I don't know what I mean by this, but I feel like Nine is the only doctor that could pull off saying, you just assume I don't fuck. (laughs) You know? No, Sylvester McCoy could totally say that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I suppose. I I don't know. I just, I can actually picture Nine being like, going to a bar and picking up a lady i feel like i don't know no <laughs> i think you're just saying like he has a leather jacket on i think that's what it is he just looks uh he looks like he's about to head out to the town in his uh getting laid outfit yeah he does uh, but, you know there's there's so much of that like moffity innuendo in this there's another one of those moments it's a really good joke but it just felt weird to have the doctor say it Great, thanks. And I want to find a blonde in a Union Jack. I mean a specific one. I didn't just wake up this morning with a craving. <laughs> that is a good joke. Excellent joke. And I also love that but it's like... Jack say it? Well, I, what I like about it is that he's like entertaining these kids that are at this uh, this weird dinner thing that yeah. they do whenever the bombs dinner. come. And that's fun. All the kids uh, enjoy him. All the kids like him. Yeah, they him. love that innuendo about just wanting to fuck a random blonde. <laughs> Well, uh, they're, they're, you know, preteen boys. Those are exactly the kind of joke that they By would be preteen, into. you mean there's like seven-year-olds. There's a few seven-year-olds in there. There's, there's like, also Nancy, who's yeah. a... I guess we never get a concrete age from her, he but she's like got to be 20 early 20. Her, yeah. yeah, Does you're like 20 or some, some shit. And that's another thing. That's like a, a twist in this that, you know, this entire time we've been led to believe that Jamie, this little infected boy, was her brother, but it turns out it's actually her like illegitimate child are you my mommy yes yes i am your mommy magnificent twist by the way even on watching it again i always i love that twist yeah i actually this time i was like how did i not get it before like i know because it ties into the are you my mommy it's the only thing he says yeah yeah which we haven't talked about it at all it's the most iconic thing it's you know what this episode is famous for jamie the gas mask kid and saying that very, very famous line. And this is the first time that doctor who actually scared me, you know, that, that kid is fucking creepy as hell. Also that scene where, uh, Dr. Constantine gets, uh, transformed. She knows more than she's saying. She won't tell me, but she, me that is like creepy as hell for me honestly that's one of the other i I don't think i got to it the other thing that uh i didn't like as much as this episode uh the cgi is aged a lot worse than i remember it's it's bad and that scene is actually damaged by it much more than almost anything else i think because it's right there close up look at his face look at these bad morph (laughs) blur effects as this gas mask pushes out you do kind of need it because you need to know what happens, but I think you could have just seen a lot less of it. You could have looked away from it. Yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, it's more about the concept, though. The concept Great is concept. freaky. Great concept, absolutely. And, you know, nothing, you know, things are impermanent. Nothing looks good forever, particularly not in the world of CGI. It's another one of those examples of, like, if anything... Stephen Moffat should have taken a note of when he was like on his rise, when everyone was praising every episode that he put out. 
you know, a great mystery just isn't the same without a great satisfactory explanation. Mm-hmm. And this episode has it in abundance. I love the explanation of the nanogenes. This lot have never seen a human being before. Don't know what a human being's supposed to look like. All they've got to go on is one little body and there's not a lot left. But they carry right on. They do what they're programmed to do. They patch it up. You're talking about a great mystery. The setup of the mystery is the sort of the uh, the sickness of this. Is You talked about earlier great concepts and equally fantastic concepts, maybe even superior to the resolution. You know, the idea that those nanogenes are replicating these injuries, right? By the following morning, every doctor and nurse who had treated him, who had touched him, had those exact same injuries. By the morning after that, every patient in the same ward, the exact same injuries. Within a week, the entire hospital. Physical injuries as plague. That is such a great mystery. How the hell is this pattern of physical injuries repeating across people with a cut on the hand and everything. Oh, I remember the first time I watched it being like, what is going on? That's so fucking cool. That line too, just uh, sends shivers down my spine. Yeah. Sends nanogenes down your spine. And yeah. So now all my separate vertebrae have little tiny gas masks on them. Little gas masks. But, uh, you know, they figure it out eventually. <laughs> Those clever little nanogenes. That's my Christopher <laughs> Eccleston. You like it? Talk about your weird bent wiener. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here, let me just hold my ears out to the side real quick. Nailed it. There's one more iconic moment from this story that we absolutely would be mud-wallowing shame beasts (laughs) if we didn't mention. And that's the famous line. Everybody lives, Rose. Just this once. Everybody lives! Absolutely. Uh, And it comes out of nowhere because, like, this episode's so dark in a lot of ways that you just think, like, all those people are fucked. Yeah, absolutely. And realistically, it's a moment that's very iconic, but it hasn't necessarily grown on me over time because I've seen more and more stories where everybody lives. (laughs) Especially Stephen Moffat stories. Especially Stephen Moffat stories. And so it, it feels, like, slightly diminished. But I can never forget what it felt like watching it for the first time. And he says that. And for some reason, I don't know why. I guess maybe that, you know, there were a lot of really pretty brutal stories in series one, realistically. Or at least people dying always. You think about like uh, even the unquiet dead, you know, Gwyn dies. Like people, people die in, uh, in the first series of Doctor Who. There was this like real groundswell of emotion at that moment. It really felt like after the time war and after all this alluded to darkness that he fucking needed that. Yeah. And he really nails it in his performance. Like you could have watched that episode without seeing the rest of series one and kind of gotten the idea of the shit that he wades through on a week to week basis. (laughs) Yeah. It's fantastic. Eh. Eh. Yeah. It it really, it's got a, it's, it's got a punch to it. And with our discussion concluded, it's time for some trivia. Almost universally praised by critics, The Empty Child and The Doctor Dances Together also won the Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation Short Form in 2005. Wow. Yeah, this show gets uh, nominated uh, somewhat often, but I don't think it's it's won very many times. Yeah, it gets nominated almost every year, at least for the whoever is playing The Doctor. It seems yeah. to always get nominated. 
This story, as almost certainly discussed earlier, introduces Captain Jack Harkness, describing him as a time agent from the 51st century. The ultimate villain of the Talons of Wang Chiang, Magnus Greel, is also from the 51st century and described himself as being chased by time agents. I did pick up on that because we had just watched it for episode 43, The Great Detective. Yeah, and I thought that was pretty cool because I'd never realized that before. It's also, uh, it becomes like a weird thing of Stephen Moffat's that like everything takes place in the 51st century. Correct. (laughs) (laughs) Here's something I didn't know about the time agents. The origins of the time agents are detailed in the novel Emotional Chemistry. Ooh, I do want to learn more about them. We never actually see them. Yeah, I didn't know that the novels actually had any information about them. And if they lay out their origins, that's got to be a decent chunk of information in there. So I'm, I'm really curious. Yeah, and I wonder how, uh, how well it still holds to like what we know about Jack and stuff. I mean, what do we really know about his time with the time agents? He forgot things. <laughs> they set up that huge mystery in this about them stealing two years of his life. And do we ever get anything? I feel like there's something at the end of series two of Torchwood, but I can't remember it. I think you're just talking about stuff with his brother. Yeah, yeah, with Gray. Isn't that his brother's name? Adam? Sure. (laughs) We're on very different ends of a spectrum. You know what? No, Gray is the hidden brother of Jack Bauer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I think by Adam, I might be be naming that a... Now, fuck it, we're talking about Torchwood. What are we doing? (laughs) Part of the filming for this story took place on Barry Island. This is noteworthy because Barry Island had previously been the home to a holiday camp which was the filming location for Delta and the Bannermen. Yes. Shangri-ha. Shangri-ha. If you want to hear us discuss that absolute gem from classic, you can listen to Twin Dilemma episode 39 on holiday. Shout out to Ray. (laughs) Shout out to Fenric wanting to fuck Ray. (laughs) In The Empty Child, Rose mentions Mr. Spock marking the first reference in a Doctor Who TV story to the Star Trek universe. I believe later on, there would at least be an 11th Doctor Star Trek comic book crossover. So if you care about trying to make that canon, good luck. Yeah, that exists. I've never read it. I tried to read it one time, and I found it too ugly to look at. (laughs) Oof. That is like a a real killer with comic books. Yeah, and a lot of the Doctor Who ones are pretty ugly. (laughs) And with our two sickly discussions complete, that can mean only one thing. It's time to vomit. Well, later. First, a dilemma. <laughs> got Later. Now, you have got to make a choice. All right, so, Fenric Lamar, which story... Do you think... Empty Child and the Doctor Dances. I mean, such <laughs> suspense. Get your fucking coin out, bitch. Yeah, I got my coin. Get your dirty little coin out. Whip I it, predicted that this. dirty little coin out. Tails, I call it. Let's move call along. Tails. And Hustle. we're still flipping that 10 point pence coin, uh, you uh, you British listeners. I don't care. Just flip it. Just make it happen. What, Ooh, whoa, what, did what you call? the hell was that? I called it Tails. It is heads. Fuck... So I may have uh, released what appeared to be a scream of fuck moments ago. 
but that was a victory fuck. Oh, yeah. You wanted to lose the coin flip? It was a mind game. Oh, okay. Yeah, you wouldn't understand that because you're not on the teraleptal level that I'm operating on. What would have happened if you had won? I would have said fuck, but I would have meant it as a bad thing. Okay, I'm following you here. Uh, so now that I've uh, my ruse has been a success, uh, let me explain why The Visitation is the superior story to a fan and critic favorite, <laughs> <laughs> The Empty Child and the Doctor Dances. First of all, Richard Mace. He, he's this is great. not a direction to go with me. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 fine, go ahead. No, listen, I'm going to make you admit one thing, all right? You may have not liked him that much because he was, uh, first of all, first of all, what's wrong in your brain that you like Pex, but you don't like Richard Mace? <laughs> Pex is a great character. All right, shut up. He's yeah. going to put Richard Mace to rights. <laughs> but Richard Mace is much more interesting and much more memorable than 90% of characters that we see in classic Doctor Who. Uh, I Yeah, I agree. He's a really fascinating compelling guy who's weird as fuck and has a memorable performance he's a big part of what makes it a fun story and i think same thing with the the terileptals i wish they actually had a more compelling story i think the mind control thing really throws them under the bus in terms of like having really just being an interesting villain but design wise uh they're fucking the cool weird ugly melty ninja turtles <laughs> Yeah, they do have that, like, shell thing going on yeah. on their backs. And what more do you want than weird, ugly, melty Ninja Turtles? And they loved 17th century pizza, so. Yes, they did. And there's that, that line where they all say cowabunga together. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll tell you, I mean, if you're comparing designs, I certainly think they beat the iconic designs for the <laughs> empty child. Oh, wait, no, the opposite. They probably lose miserably, don't they? They do a little bit. Uh, you know, talking about Richard Mace, you, you're right. He is very memorable. He's not my taste. I could understand if somebody told me they were, like, really in Richard Mace returning to the show. Yeah. You know, there's some guy who hangs around at the cons who just wants to talk about Richard well, it's Mace. probably the actor who plays Richard Mace. <laughs> <laughs> could be. But unfortunately for you... Oh, the, wait, is, the most, is there a, an interesting parallel the to most Richard most comparable Mace? character. <laughs> and it's the one that became an iconic character in the show and appeared across multiple seasons? Yes, uh, it's it's that one uh, that one general who gets, like, who's left about, with her uh, Mr. when she's Lloyd chained to the, the table. <laughs> Mr. Lloyd, the closeted <laughs> <laughs> homeowner. I, that guy, I do love his performance. He's He acts like a human pig. So how about this? Your episode is homophobic. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that moment, they wouldn't do that anymore. Even yeah. even though it's period appropriate. Yeah, I, think I guess that, so. I don't think the show would have a character be actively blackmailed by another character for being homosexual and have that be a, hey, they got him. <laughs> I see what <laughs> you mean. Kind of funny moment. Don't you think that like the new show would feel like that's too sensitive? Possibly, which is disappointing. Yeah, because I think it, it fits the period fine and it, it totally works. But when I watched that, I was like, that's not the sensibility of the show anymore. Like that's a moment that doesn't quite age and probably in five years will look at even more aged and bigoted. This is a bigoted, <laughs> horrible episode that spreads uh, bigotry, and you're a bigot for having even selected it during the coin flip. You know, I don't think I even got around to saying that Captain Jack is the answer. Uh, and what a, what a bigoted in... character he is as well. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Captain Jack, what a troubling portrayal 
of a <laughs> of a polysexual uh, character in that he's so promiscuous. Just because you like multiple genders, you have to want to fuck all of them all the time. Hateful. This show is guilty of hate speech. This is the only venue I've got. <laughs> I do have to say that uh, John Barman does a really convincing job when he's portraying a person wanting to have sex with a woman. <laughs> like, it sounds like I'm being sarcastic or something, but like uh, t- to make a weird uh, turn, like I fucking h- hate Jim Parsons and he's also gay in real life and I don't think he convincingly plays a straight person. But I think John Barrowman can play any sexuality and you just believe it because it's John Barrowman. This is fun. I feel like you've given me just enough to work with to now so that you are bigoted. <laughs> Clearly. As a deep entrenched homophobia happening on your whole side of the, the coin flip. Well, I'd like to talk for a moment about the, the conflicts of our stories. Okie dokie. I'm sure my conflict will be superior. <laughs> uh, I, we, we both agreed there's something interesting there in that, in that plague thing. But I'm struggling to think of another ex- an example in classic Who, because I feel like Empty Child Doctor Dances, it's one of the earliest examples of sort of, you know, there's not some big campaign here. At the end of the day, everything was the result of a big sci-fi fuck up. And that's really interesting. And it, it pays off in a really interesting way in that story. I mean, I guess uh, I mean, you could you could argue that the the Great Fire of London is like if you count just the last five seconds of yours. I mean, I would say there are stories like that. I mean, the face of evil is basically like yeah, a, I suppose so. But there's still like a a villain there. There there isn't the, really the a nano genes are the villain essentially. Mm, sure. I mean, as much as uh, Zordon, what's his fucking name? Zoanan. <laughs> Zoanan is. Who is he? Who is he? <laughs> <laughs> But you know what I mean? Yeah. It's a, a a masterless system that's gone awry. I think Classic did that a couple of times. Um, I'm struggling to think of another example, but uh, I, I do think, because that's, that's a pretty classic uh, science fiction idea, the sort of horror of a system that you create that becomes uh, operational on its own. Well, fine. I still <laughs> like it. It's. I think it's neat. I still like it too, but it's uh, it's clearly inferior to all that mind control stuff I spoke so fondly of during uh, the discussion. That brings up an interesting thing is that uh, your episode sort of just goes with a sci-fi trope. Uh, doesn't really add anything new or rich to it. This story, uh, Empty Child and Dr. Dances, it, it sort of like had this mission statement to reinvent the zombie genre. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a little bit grandiose. I think... Uh, Basically, all of its elements, other than literally the gas mask thing, had been done before. But, I mean, that doesn't help anything with a comparison to the visitation. (laughs) Wait, hold on. There's got to be something groundbreaking in the visitation. Uh, Turtles, uh, a robot dressed as a Grim Reaper. Uh, The the first time they used animatronics. Yeah. So there's something. (laughs) Uh, also, uh, you've got that beautiful looking android. God, that android's so fucking ugly. Yeah, it's like, it's funny because because of the animatronics, the animatronics do look really good and honestly have aged pretty well, particularly the shot of like uh, the melty pterileptal face and stuff like that. I'd love to claim some kind of points for production design because the period stuff looks good too. But the fucking android ruins everything. 
Also, the production design in my episode's really good. They do a really good job of making it look like the 1940s, it 1930s. Looks all, it looks all right, honestly. The CGI has aged really, really badly, really, really quickly. I thought uh, it was really interesting. We didn't get a chance to talk about this scene because it's really a minor note in an episode chock full of great scenes. The way that they throw you into this environment is really cool, where the doctor walks into that party and there's, there's that joke where he goes up on stage and says, Might seem like a stupid question, but has anything fallen from the sky recently? <laughs> yeah, that's a really fun moment. I do like that. And, you know, the visitation actually has a really great entry point to the story as well. I love that weird little scene with this sort of, sort of oddly bitter family. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, yeah. And they're all kind of like sitting around the dinner table, and there's a great, there's a great spooky tone in that beginning. You know, you've got the creepy lights overhead, and then this family that's all in the dark and arguing. The sort of father character says, "Now let me pass it now." Yes, sir. You're incorrigible, father. Haven't you drunk enough already? This is medicinal. I'm going to bed. And since the spookiest thing of all is the grim specter of alcoholism <laughs> hanging over the family. And I, I like that they did sort of a cold open kind of uh, format to that story. Yeah, I actually really like that scene. You, you can't see the shitty android. <laughs> and they get in a, a shootout with it. And then I actually do like the way the reveal sort of plays out. That they, you know, they killed one of the pteroleptals and everything. Like, uh, that's nice con- construction. I don't know if I can say it's better than the scene in The Empty Child. I guess I can say it. You I can, can say, say it, it, but not mean it. Uh, I will choose not to agree. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. How are you feeling about your companions? Oh, uh, boy. <laughs> Ooh. Do you want to go in general or in this story? Because one's bad, the other's worse. Considering Tegan spends the entire story as like a mind-fucked zombie, and she's the companion I like... I, I think that what they wanted to do with this story was they were like, you know, let, we like what Nissa's doing. <laughs> Why don't you spend a story acting like Sarah Sutton? Yeah, get more just more Nissa-ness around. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of uh, Adric not doing much. What does he do in this story? I can't even remember a single moment with him. He runs around. He There's a moment where he elects to follow the sort of grim reaper, and it's really inexplicable. Oh, right. There, he like Is it the moment where he runs out of the TARDIS and gets nabbed immediately? There's that one. I think he gets grabbed by like the group. This is the one where he's ch- getting chased by the group who's being mind-controlled. Then the reaper, who's some, for some reason not working with a group who's being mind-controlled, even though they're all being controlled by the same guy. <laughs> and then uh, he follows the reaper, and they go to the TARDIS and he like helps trick them to get into the TARDIS. Even though the TARDIS doors close. So I don't understand how the android who's in the Reaper outfit is able to open the TARDIS doors. It looked like he was able to like stick an arm in and hold they were a, a jar. Closed. It was some horse shit. Wait, no, it's uh, it's my episode. So uh, yeah, as a jar as fuck. But if I'm remembering correctly, I think you were right initially. I think you had it about the jar thing. It was very ajar. I think he turns back to, to a Adric. Jar. A jar. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Super ajar. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm. Adric doesn't do much in this story. Uh, Isn't that for the best? Sure. Rose is a super active in my story in a lot of uh, a lot of fun ways. Yeah, she has some pretty good moments. I will say, 
one thing that I think, I don't think Stephen Moffat actually writes Rose that well. Yeah, I know what you mean. He writes her as basically, uh, you could call it mad slutty. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's funny, even though it's uh, become one of her like iconic outfits, the choice of like uh, writing her into that like Union Jack shirt Mm -hmm. feels very wrong for Rose. And like, there are certain moments that are fun, right? Like I like the idea of uh, her kind of pretending she's the doctor almost, although you can see him take that idea again later. Like you see a lot of things that Stephen Moffat just steals from himself over and over again. But she is like hitting on everybody in this story. She wants to bang Captain Jack from the moment she lands in his (laughs) arms. Yeah, I I just, I don't think she's really written with the same kind of heart or personality. And I can, maybe it's because Russell Davies rewrote them more, but if you pick a run-of-the-mill RTD episode, it feels a bit more like Rose. Whereas this, the a lot of the jokes are really kind of like against the grain of her character, realistically. Well, uh, take this uh, qu- quote with for with a grain of salt because it's just me remembering this. <laughs> okay. But I remember from a long time ago, uh, Russell T. Davies said that the only scripts he doesn't touch are Stephen Moffat's. I mean, it feels like it yeah. because you could really just take this script and imagine throw the 11th Doctor in there, something like that. And the lines pretty much line up perfectly versus most of the other stories in in an RTD season. And it's just like, they just scream Tennant or they scream Eccleston. They really feel more uh, catered to that period. Well, just to to summarize everything. uh, I I, I feel like this is going to be really good for me. (laughs) I feel like your episode is iconic in a, a couple ways that we didn't even talk about in the dilemma. (laughs) Um, And I think that my episodes are iconic in quite a few ways, so much so that they have made Are You My Mummy references like four times since then. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason for it. It's because it's one of those early New Who great 10 out of 10 episodes. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when you say it like that. It's almost like the visitation is a largely forgotten, somewhat <laughs> middle of the road classic story being pitted against probably one of the stories most responsible for the success of the entire new show. It's almost like that. Yeah. It's almost like I lose the dilemma. <laughs> Why don't we just go ahead and say it is like that? It's uh it's like that. It is that. Oh, it is that. Well, Before we wrap this up, uh, I do have one question for you, Edward. Who's your mummy? I don't know, but I got to call you my fucking daddy after that. (laughs) Whooping. Hey, I feel so bad inside. (laughs) (laughs) And with that massacre of a dilemma complete, now it's time to move on to our bonus this week. From Big Finish, it's the Angel of Skitari. Oh, I get it. You want to meet Florence Nightingale. Well, it'd be nice. Hex and Florence sitting in a tree. K-I-S-S-I. It's not like that. It's just, she was kind of the reason I started all this. Nursing. After a particularly brutal encounter with the Daleks, the Seventh Doctor's companion, Hex, is looking to help people with his nursing skills. The Doctor delivers him into the Crimean War to meet Florence Nightingale herself and tend to the wounded. But while he's busy, the Doctor gets himself and Ace into trouble of their own with a bloodthirsty Brigadier General. Edward, what do you think of the Angel of Skatari? You know, before re-listening to this, I would have said 
this was a really excellent story. And on hearing it again, I think it's like a very good story, but I actually liked it a little bit less. I'm pretty much in the same camp. Oh, I'm, you know, I'm like, I'm surprised, but I also like, I'm sort of happy to hear that because I like, it always makes me sad when yeah. that happens with a big finish in particular. It's like, oh, but I loved you. Well, this was also uh, to give a, a little backstory into our budding friendship. Uh-huh. Uh, and by that, I mean, we, we rub our butts together. We rub our butts, our butting friendship. <laughs> there, this was a, a point where like, I had already been listening to Big Finish a lot, and mm-hmm. but I hadn't listened to any of Seven. So we agreed to listen to like all of the Seventh Range together. We were sort of we were following butt- along. Yeah. We were budding. Yeah. And uh, I remember us having a discussion after listening to the story and being like, wow, that was so great. We were mad into it. Yeah. And it is like, it's still... It's still very good. Yeah, it's it's full of well-rounded characters. Mm-hmm. There's very few moments where you get lost in the story of the audio. It still accomplishes something that, which is impressive, which is to be a true historical, but be good. Yeah, yeah. I've never really been that interested in the the historicals, but uh, yeah, it, it is it is still a good story. What were we smoking before? We were like, <laughs> this is the fucking shit. <laughs> Uh, not that it's terrible, but yeah, it's just uh, listening to it this time, I was like, you know what? This is a little bit more convoluted than it needs to be. And I remembered there being a lot more scenes with Hex and Florence Nightingale than there actually are. And uh, it kind of, it almost relies on this kind of a Quentin Tarantino style intercutting to actually stay interesting in lieu of a, a genuinely compelling story. To answer your question from before, I believe we were smoking Scutar Reefer. Oh, hey. We had Scutar Reefer madness. <laughs> I had that joke like 10 minutes ago and you just <laughs> kept like, talking. I've got to get it out. It's really good. I'm a very poor gauge of what's hilarious. <laughs> no, I thought everything but the last part. <laughs> I can't wait to butt with Edward later. <laughs> That's what we do immediately after finishing recording. That's how we celebrate. We have a little rap party. Just grab a, the tub of Vaseline and just butt. We just butt down. Uh, to make it extra interesting, I didn't clean tonight. Ooh, batting down the hatches. <laughs> yeah, so we mentioned it earlier. This is a, a historical. And I always think that poses a, an interesting set of challenges to Doctor Who in terms of how to make it still a story that people are actually interested in. And yeah, you said in your description, it takes place during the Crimean War. We've got goddamn Tolstoy in there. Which I totally forgot that he was in this story. Forgot about that as well. It's actually an interesting thing. You know, the the theme is sickness. In this case, uh, rather than a plague, we've got people dealing with all these ailments associated with war and the disease associated with the uncleanliness associated with war. And we've got sort of healthcare in it. But all three of our stories also are all centered around major historical events. Oh, yeah. Didn't even realize that. Historical disease. (laughs) Yeah. We could tweak that theme. Because <laughs> we've got the Great Fire of London, got the Blitz, and then we've got the Crimean War. Right. Uh, what what they don't all have is Florence Nightingale. That's she's, true. She's in this story. Old Flo. What do you think about old, old Flo? Yeah. <laughs> uh, old I love, Aunt I, Flo. I love her in those commercials. Like a period. Um, we, we, we took really different roads on the reference. <laughs> what are those progressive ads where they have Flo? Yeah. Yeah. Speaking honestly, I never got the flow. Uh, you know, you never got, got your flow. <laughs> it really should have happened by now. So that's the way I went. Was the antiquated reference to menstruation? Uh-uh. <laughs> it's me, flow. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, you you sort of talked about it briefly. 
It's amazing how little Florence Nightingale is in this story. Don't you remember there being more of yeah. her? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Hex, considering the story's about Hex. Yeah. And the story ends up being so splintered with all these different timelines and different locations. And you've got Ace, the Doctor, and Hex, not only in two separate timelines, but in different locations all at the same time. And uh, I, I don't think you really get enough to to bite onto in any of those different sequences. I do like that uh, Big Finish does this in a couple different stories, that they have the ballsiness to just tell you, we've been here for months. Yeah, I do like that. They just leave Hex behind for, I think they say it's like six weeks. That's really cool. It makes them feel like they have actual lived out lives. Yeah, and I do like, you know, Hex has this uh, whole backstory that's happening in this where he's apparently became a nurse because of Florence Nightingale and loves Florence Nightingale, and he finally gets to meet her. Are you the nurse who sent for more lamp oil? No, my name is Florence Nightingale. I'm here to help. Bartholomew, find more lamp oil, please. Yes, Miss Nightingale. Welcome to Shkutari, Miss Nightingale. Dr. Schofield, repositioning this man's ligature and burning the wound may save his life and what's left of his leg. Gawping at me surely won't. Dr. Schofield! I'm not a doctor, yeah? In the few scenes that we do get of them together, what do you think of their dynamic? I do like that, like, Hex is trying to sort of impose this whole new medicine on everyone. And I love that, like, right up until the moment they meet, he's constantly trying to get control of the situation, constantly Mm -hmm. trying to say, like, this is how we should be doing things. And then the moment Florence Nightingale comes in, he's like, "Uh, uh, Yeah, he's uh, he's real big dick in it. And then that shit shrivels right up as soon as he sees her. <laughs> yeah, he jumped right into a pool of cold water. Uh, called flow. <laughs> pool of cold flow. Uh, but yeah, I, I do like them together. And like you said, we really don't get to see much. That's the thing that much. bothers me. Is like I, in my head, I like have these ghost memories of scenes that aren't there. And I feel like listening to it now, the sort of evolution their dynamic has feels almost like fabricated. Honestly, uh, I think that because he gets a lot of uh, airtime, one of the better characters is the antagonist, the Brigadier General. That- yeah, Barty, Barty Kitchen. It's Brigadier General Bartholomew Barty Kitchen. <laughs> and uh, this guy really wants to kill the doctor. He's a maniac. They're really not afraid to go way over the top with him, but in a way that doesn't bother you. He's just like, he's a fucking insane person. Well, and, you know, like I mentioned, it's this sort of splintered timeline, right? Where you've got uh, Hex, who's sort of at the end of the story, right? Because he's, like you said, he's been there for months. But then we're also simultaneously with mostly the Doctor and Ace at the beginning of the story when they all get separated. And you see Barty, Barty, Bartholomew, Kitchen, Brigadier, General, (laughs) Nicholas, Lethbridge, Stewart. You see him at both points. And uh, towards the back end, he's much more loco. Yeah, I would think so. As they said in the Crimea. (laughs) Yeah, he uh, goes off the rails like a crazy train. Yeah, he's much more sort of addled and uh, he's just sort of gone nuts, I guess, because of the specter of the the doctor sort of looming over him. Yeah, he definitely has this sort of like obsession with this doctor who just keeps getting just outside of his grasp. And in the somewhat convoluted plot, you know... Uh, Barty, Bartholomew, Bartholomew, Bartholowitz, Hatsowitz, he is an actual sort of betrayer who's sort of 
pinned it on the doctor in the past, but then the doctor got away, but he faked his death. And so now he's stuck with that. And so we, and then he hears Hex has worked with the doctor and all oh, shit's everywhere. Oh my God. The doctor is the, the sickness that he wants <laughs> yeah. to hear. Speaking of the doctor, there's one seventh doctor line in this I really, really love. He says, I don't suppose you brought a couple of spoons with you by any chance. <laughs> You're not planning to dig your way out? Failing that, at least I could entertain myself with a tune. And the person says to him, I say, your clothes are covered in blood. <laughs> the, the, the contrast there of him just being like, do you have any spoons? And the other person being like, dude, you're drenched in human blood. <laughs> that just felt like just perfect little seven in a bottle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Sylvester McCoy, just he has to keep the cheer up in the room because they're yeah. locked in a cell at the time, I believe. Yeah, no matter how blood drenched you are, no matter how many corpses are at your feet, <laughs> got to play some spoons. You can't let those uh, those spoons go unplayed. Or possibly shoot up. Mm. Maybe that's why he needs all those spoons. Interesting. It's an interesting theory. Oh, that'd be a great fan theory to float. There must have been opium at the available, right? He is the doctor who in the, the one novel does coke, right? Oh, right. In that Russell T. Davies novel. Yeah. What's it called? Uh, coke head, <laughs> coke slinging fiend. <laughs> Smooth criminal. <laughs> Isn't it, uh, is it Love and War? Is that the one? I don't think so. It's one of the ones war that they adapted. Peace. Yeah, War. <laughs> he does a lot of coke with, uh, with Tolstoy. Uh, we're going to tiptoe around this issue, but I do want to bring it up because it's uh, part of an ongoing storyline with the Seventh Doctor. At one point in this story, the TARDIS gets hit by a cannonball. The readings confirm it. As I suspected, when the cannonball hit the TARDIS at Sebastopol, it caused the hostile action displacement system to activate. Yeah, but white TARDIS? Ah, well, the cannon shot must have shattered her corporeal shell. And it turns white. Yeah, and it's true. Yeah, we don't want to say too much more, but if you if this is the only sort of story from this part of the main range that you've heard, and you were like, what the fuck? That's the appropriate response. Yeah, because you, uh, we, we don't get an answer about what's going on with that for like 20 more stories. Yeah. And uh, in that whole period, all you're thinking is, what the fuck is happening? And it's great. And a lot of times you literally forget that the TARDIS is still white. And then they're yeah. like, what's this white box? And you're like, yeah, what is that white box? And uh, here's the closest thing that I'll say to a spoiler. There is a resolution and it's really cool. It is really cool. A uh, very seventh doctor. Maybe we were just, we were like so fucking hard up for that, that we have <laughs> the whole rest of the story, even though it was just pretty good. We were like, it's amazing. Maybe. Still overall, don't want to give the wrong impression. Not a bad story by any means. It's just that I think we both had the same thing, which was we remembered it as an incredible story. And it's really more like a good to very good story. I would still recommend it. Absolutely. Especially if you're looking for historicals, which I know there are still fans out there who are like, want to see those come back. Yeah. If you want a historical, I think uh, it's one of the best still. And with our discussion taken care of, we'll move on to some Angel of Scutari trivia. This release also came with the third episode of an ongoing miniseries, The Three Companions, which I have not listened to. I've heard of it, though. Yeah. It's, it's two iconic companions. And one random Big Finish companion, if I remember correctly. Correct. It's uh, the Brigadier. Yep. Polly, iconic. Yeah. Uh, 
okay. But she's from the TV show. Yeah, least. she's established. And then Thomas fucking Brewster, who not only is from Big Finish, but he's completely unlikable. So I don't know why they care. Yeah, I don't even... Like, who is he with in Big Finish? I don't remember him. Five. Oh, he, okay. Yeah, he's like a... He steals five he's a TARDIS. Thief. Yeah, I remember him now. Ace tells us that the doctor keeps a spare TARDIS key in a cubby hole above the P in police box. This is actually introduced in the 8th Doctor TV movie. You know, when I was listening to it, I was like, that totally didn't occur to me. But as soon as I read that piece of trivia, I was like, oh shit, I do remember that. There's like that scene where like 8 and Grace have a little exchange about it. I remember from the TV movie, but I didn't know that was actually the first time it ever appeared. It is. I wonder if fans fucking hated that. They were like, a spare fucking key right above the door? How stupid. Yeah, it seems like a very easy way to get the most valuable thing in the universe stolen. And people also, like, really were willing to hate on anything in the TV movie. Sir Sidney Herbert and Tsar Nicholas I were both played by Hugh Bonneville of Downton Abbey fame. He would also later appear in the TV series as Captain Avery in that classic Curse of the Black Spot. Yeah, you know, he's appeared, I think, in a couple other big finishes, if I remember correctly. Is that right? I think so. But he does a good job doing multiple roles. Yeah, he does. Those are two very uh, wildly different characters. And uh, I didn't, you know, he has a pretty distinctive voice, and I didn't realize it was him at all. No, same for me. I didn't, uh, I, like, uh, like, the czar in particular, as, like, you really recognize the voice and it stands out. So, good job, Hugh Bonneville, Captain uh, Avery Crawley. <laughs> Who's Crawley? Oh, yeah, that's, that's his character. In, uh... <laughs> I was trying to do a mad mashup. Yeah, I gotcha, I gotcha. It's been a while since I've watched that show. Dude, I haven't seen it in years. I was like digging real hard for his. I was like, it's, it begins with a C or some shit. <laughs> it's not Abby. <laughs> <laughs> you, you landed on it, I think. Although he shares the name of a famous Doctor Who actor, the character William Russell was actually a real life reporter. Considered to be the original war correspondent. That's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, and he's got like a very strange character in this story. Yeah, he does. But uh, it was strange that uh, until I was looking at the cast list after I was already done with the audio was the moment and I saw it in writing. I was like, oh yeah, they kept saying William Russell was in this audio. <laughs> What's going on with that? Yeah, well, he um, he's in uh, scenes with a character named Preston, I think, a lot. Mm-hmm. And they're... I don't think they're played by the same performer, but their voices are just kind of similar. Yeah, I can see that. And it's a little bit hard to know who's who, except uh, Preston's way more of a bitch. <laughs> William Russell's much more of an Ian type. Yeah. Now I'm just adding to the confusion. Yeah. <laughs> and so we arrive at the end of another episode of The Twin Dilemma. This week, our sickness-filled episode. That's right. Just by listening to it, you are now all infected. Specifically with AIDS. Yes, super aids. Oh, the super kind. Yeah, it's we sprung uh, for the super kind. Do we have the budget for that? You know, it, it was pricey, uh, but I decided to splurge a little bit. Yeah, our fans deserve the best. This week, the empty child and the doctor dances makes a visitation to the visitation, and then just like pulls down its pants and just like shits on it. It was very rude. <laughs> God, it pulled down its pants and then it shit on it. What an abnormal maneuver. <laughs> What, would you prefer to just shit down the, the, the leg? What are they fucking called? Oh, no. It made it sound like you, it pulled the pants of the visitation down and then like oh. shit on its <laughs> exposed <laughs> bottom. 
<laughs> yeah, that too. That was a, a true mental sickness. They were budding. They were budding. I have been Fender Kamar. And I, primed and ready to butt, am Edward Grove. Join us again next week for more discussions, more debates, more dilemmas, more Doctor Who. Bye. Bye. Tune in next week when our theme is Noel. Small finish. We love dumb shit.